Welcome to Liquid Church Media. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins. Modern minds see the Bible as ancient myth. Water can't turn to blood. Frogs from heaven? A wall of water? That's impossible. This summer, discover the science behind the scripture. What's up, everybody? want to welcome you, especially shout out to those of you in New Brunswick who are watching or listening, those of you who are online. Uh, I'm Pastor Tim, and uh, want to welcome you to our new series, Exodus Unlocked, The Science Behind the Scripture, which is kind of a contradictory title in some ways, because historically, modern people tend to think there's a conflict between science and Scripture. Uh, that is, if you're a person of faith, for instance, um, you likely regard the Bible as, you know, you may say, this is the very truth of God. It's, it's the inerrant word. Uh, that's what we, how we treat it here at Liquid. It's why we teach from the Bible every week. But the truth is, if you're more of an agnostic, you're a doubter, or more of a modern mind, you may have your doubts. A lot of modern people, maybe of coworkers or friends, regard the Bible kind of as a book of myths, you know, miracles that really defy natural explanation. That's what modern critics claim, that religious faith kind of defies logic. It's not reasonable because the things that we are described in here defy explanation. I mean, the supernatural. Think about what the core of our faith is based around, right? A man and a woman in a garden and a serpent comes along, a talking snake, a Red Sea that just like magically parts. The sun stands still for a day. A baby's born to a virgin. A guy dies and then after three days he comes back to life. Please, this is the problem with Christianity, for modern minds at least. I have to suspend logic for it to believe it. No reasonable person can swallow this kind of stuff. It defies scientific evidence. So, in other words, a lot of people in our world say to be a believer means you've got to check your brain at the door and accept things without evidence. So, for a lot of people, it's kind of like there's these two worlds. There's the world of fact. There's the world of fiction. And I guess faith is somewhere in between the two. In fact, Time Magazine highlighted that tension in their cover article. Is the Bible fact or fiction? Archaeologists in the Holy Land are shedding new light on what did and didn't occur in the greatest stories ever told. And you can see they put a picture of Moses holding up the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai and thunder crackling overhead. And uh, the reality is the question we're asking in this series is, what if science and scripture aren't telling two completely different stories, but actually saying the same thing? What if modern advances in things like archaeology, geology, and all that don't debunk ancient accounts in the Bible, but rather confirm their veracity, their truth? Take the Exodus, for instance, that story of how God delivered his people, the Israelites, from from slavery in Egypt. The Exodus is the central event in the Old Testament. In fact, if you've heard of that, the Exodus actually lies at the heart of Judaism, Christianity, and even Islam. For thousands of years, believers have treated the Exodus as historical fact, But over the past few decades, many scholars have kind of called the Exodus into question. They say, well, I don't know. It kind of seems like maybe that's a made-up myth or fairy tale. All this stuff, you know, kind of with pharaohs and signs and wonders, you know, behind the Exodus. The plagues, for instance. They say the Nile River turning into blood. That's crazy. Darkness covering the land, parting the Red Sea. They say that stuff's more legend than fact. They describe phenomena that aren't explainable. There's no scientific corroboration. But here's my question. 
what if the miraculous events of the Exodus, for instance, could be scientifically confirmed? I mean, what would that mean? Actually validated through modern science and in archaeology, geology, and the hard sciences. I want you to think about this. What if science and scripture weren't dueling, but actually dance partners, actually telling the same story? That, in fact, is my thesis uh, for this series and what we're going to explore today. When we observe supernatural accounts of miracles, are they acts of nature or the hand of God? The question is, what if there are two ways of talking about the same thing? Today, we're going to take a shot at cracking the Exodus code. That's how I'm going to put it. And whether you're a person of unflinching faith or you have your doubts, I want to challenge you to think in a new way about the historical validity of this book. Because the truth is this, guys. Christianity does not require you to check your brain at the door. And faith is not a leap in the dark, as some people think. In fact, it's been said you should run up the ramp of reason before you take a leap of faith. So I want to begin by just kind of opening our minds. I want to ask God to just kind of illuminate his truth to it, all right? So let's pray together. God, I ask right now for all the people um, right here in this room, listening online in New Brunswick, all over the world, Father, I pray, would you just right now literally open up our minds, illuminate them, Father. Our our minds can get darkened by cynicism and doubt. And I pray that this series is going to open them up, Lord, to your truth, that, that God, you are greater, you are bigger beyond anything in our imagination. So I thank you for being the creator God who personally stepped into creation to love us through your son, Jesus. So teach us through his spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so take out your Bible, okay? Open up to the book of Exodus. Pretty easy to find. Genesis, Exodus, second book in there. If you recall, the, uh, the book of Genesis ends with the, with the story of Joseph. Pastor Tom brought the story of Joseph to life in his, our previous series, Madman. And uh, Joseph went from a pit to the prison to the palace in Egypt, which was a good thing because when drought and famine hit that region, he was able to save his family in Egypt. And that's where they made their home. That's where Joseph died in Egypt, and that's where Genesis ends. But the second book of the Bible, Exodus, as that opens, 400 years have passed since, since he moved his family to Egypt, the land of the pharaohs. Now, as Exodus opens here, Joseph's Hebrew descendants are over 2 million strong, and they're spread across Egypt. So the, the Hebrew people are, are very populous at this point. They multiplied, and a new pharaoh came to power who saw all these new people, the ascendants of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. They said, that's a threat to my throne. We think maybe their numbers will upset the balance of the power of the pharaohs. And Exodus 1 says this, Then a new king who did not know jo- about Joseph came to power in Egypt. He said to his people, The Israelites have become too numerous for us. We must deal shrewdly with them. Or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So you kind of get the idea. You've got Pharaoh, a powerful ruler. More about him in a minute. He's worried about how populous these foreign people are in his country, so he comes up with a solution. He makes them slaves, little indentured servanthood. He oppresses them with forced labor, gives them kind of back-breaking construction work, an attempt just to kill their spirit and squash their growth. Verse 11 records this. It says, So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labors, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. And now, these these are two historical cities you could locate on a map today. These are the ruins of Pithom, for instance, likely built around 1290 BC. So it's like the 13th century, possibly. The other city was named Ramses, most likely after the Pharaoh, Ramses II. This is a picture of his tomb. You may have seen this in the Valley of the Kings in Egypt. 
you can actually still see his mummified remains on display today in the Cairo Museum. And here's the deal about the pharaohs. Ramses is often regarded as the most powerful, influential pharaoh in the Egyptian empire. He actually oversaw these colossal building projects. He oversaw military campaigns, very successful. And most importantly, he was worshipped, Ramses, as a god. In ancient Egypt, Pharaoh was considered the god-man. Even his name, Ramses, gives you a little clue. Think about the first two letters of his name, Ramses, R-A. How do you pronounce that? Ra. And Ra is the ancient Egyptian god of the sun. So Ramses means chosen by Ra, the god of the sun. So, so Pharaoh was really, really treated like a deity. People feared him as the earthly representative of the pagan sun god, Ra. He was ruthless, bloodthirsty man, actually obsessed with not only expanding his kingdom, but snuffing out any threats to his throne. Um, Exodus says he was so threatened by the growth of the Jews, he made it state policy to drown their baby boys. It says this, then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that's born, you must what? Throw into the Nile. So Ramses is the original abortionist of the ancient world, okay? Barbaric. This, this, is, this is one of the first records of infanticide in human history. Cruel man. Yet according to scripture, his oppression of the Israelites had the opposite effect. It says, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them, what's the word, church? Ruthlessly. This is the historical context of the Exodus, a ruthless dictator trying to crush his state slaves, okay? God's chosen people. And I'm guessing at this point, you know, the Jews are probably like, if this is what it means to be chosen, choose somebody else. <laughs> but in their distress, the Bible says God was listening. In chapter 2, it says the Israelites groaned in their slavery, and they, they cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham. So God looked on the Israelites and was what? concerned about them. God was concerned. In other words, he had compassion. He was moved in his spirit by their suffering. And, and this is really, I mean, what makes faith powerful? Because it's a huge encouragement to anybody who feels overwhelmed or against, you know, outnumbered, just kind of suffering and pain. You're not alone. God sees your plight. He's, he's moved. He has compassion. Com compassion means you not only feel what someone else is feeling, but you're like, I am going to do something about this. I am determined to help them. So God taps a man on the shoulder by the name of Moses. He's a Hebrew by birth. He was actually raised in Egypt's palace. That's another story. You can uh, rent Prince of Egypt uh, and see that. But he says to Moses, he says, that the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them, so now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, let's say the phrase, out of Egypt. Perfect. That's where Exodus gets its name. The word Exodus literally means departure. He's like, Moses, I want you to get up and get out. Lead these two million people out of this culture of slavery and death into freedom and life. And Moses' response is classic because he's just a shepherd at the time. So, so he said, who, 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 who am I that, 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 that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of, out of Egypt? He said he maybe had a stammer or something. He felt inadequate, impotent like unprepared to lead two million people out of the grip of the most powerful pharaoh in the empire. Maybe you, you ever feel that way? <laughs> Where you're like facing this outsized situation in your life that has you in its grip, could be financial problems, 
could be a relationship issue, a, a, a family situation, a career crisis. You're going to see this, guys. The story of Exodus is the story of all of us. As God can move powerfully in our lives to deliver us from situations that are just too big to take on in our own strength. And God said to Moses, good luck. It doesn't depend on you. That's the good news. He says, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a what? A mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I'll perform among them. After that, he will let you go. Translation, it is on. <laughs> okay? Time for a showdown between Ra and Yahweh, the God of the Israelites. God says, I'm going to stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians, okay? This is his declaration of war on Ra, on Ramses. He says, I'm going to perform wonders. And that's, that's really a euphemism, divine judgment, okay? Ten of them, in fact, wonders, uh, we call them plagues, plagues fired from God's war bow. You're probably familiar with a few of the plagues. Who can uh, remember one or two? Just call them out. What do you remember? Frogs. Water to blood, what else? Anything else? Gnats, great. Boils, all that, great. So, Mo- oh, look at this. This is going to be a fun one. So, Moses tells Pharaoh, let God's people go, or God's going to, he's going to hit you hard. But Pharaoh looks at his labor force. He's got two million unpaid workers here. He's building his empire. And he just scoffs. He says, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go go. That would be a no. Pharaoh's like, I'm God around these parts. I don't bow to anybody. Who's the Lord? Have we heard of this guy already? It's a great question. And Egypt was about to find out the answer. And this is where the science gets fascinating. Because the science behind these plagues we're about to look at has been hidden for thousands of years. Really, until recently, there are modern parallels now that help us see the science behind the supernatural. In your Bible, if you look there, you can see the sequence of 10 plagues. They begin in chapter 7. If you look at chapter 7, verse 17, God says the first one, he says, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into what? Blood. And this is, this is a calculated move. Yahweh's first plague is to attack Ramsey's most precious resource, the Nile. That was, that was a source of their, their uh, water, their food, their fish, their transportation, their commerce, the entire Egyptian economy and culture and housing was built around this mighty river. And after Pharaoh refuses Moses' warning, God delivers on his promise, and it says, all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. It's like it was the Passaic River. Blood, <laughs> blood was everywhere in Egypt. And this, I'll just pause here because this is where modern minds have a hard time believing the Bible. Because they're like, come on, a body of water suddenly turning into blood defies explanation. I mean, but here's the question. What if we didn't have to go back 3,000 years to find a possible explanation? What if, in fact, we only had to go back to 1986, Lake Neos, Cameroon, where a similar phenomena occurred? So a man by the name of Simka Yakubovic, he's an investigative journalist, and he did just that. And this is what he found. In 1984 at Lake Manu, and in 1986 at Lake Nios, both in Cameroon, the sweet, clear lake waters suddenly turned blood red. The mystery was solved when Professor George Kling explained the phenomenon 
in terms of an underground gas leak. What was happening was that the bottom waters contained very high concentrations of iron, dissolved iron. And when that was mixed up to the surface, when the gas was released, it contacted oxygen and it formed an iron hydroxide, essentially rust, the same thing that happens on cars. And that rust was what caused the reddish, brownish color at the surface of the lake. When it comes to the biblical plagues along the Nile Delta there, there are many elements that are present that, that could suggest a buildup of gas. What's fascinating, that's 1986 in Cameroon, is that modern Egyptologists have actually discovered that the Nile sits atop an earthquake zone. The river itself runs along a fault line, actually, in Northeast Africa. And the idea here is that if an earthquake occurred, it quite possibly could have caused an underground gas leak of iron oxide, as it did in Lake Neos, Cameroon. The, for decades, you've got to understand this, guys. That's a picture of it. For decades, it had still crystal blue water. But on August 21st, 1986, with a loud rumble, that water literally turned blood red in a matter of moments. As underground pockets of gas were released and oxidized, or they rusted spontaneously. Rust is what happens. You guys know this when, when iron and oxygen get exposed to moisture. Now, follow this theory. If the Nile turned red, blood red, as a result of a similar gas leak, then the chain of events you hold in your hands that we're about to walk through would have been set in an incredible motion. Because the first thing that happens when water becomes devoid of oxygen is that the fish die, just as verse 21 describes. In fact, all creatures swimming in the water would have died except for the ones that can hop out. Plague number two, frogs. Read with me. It says, God tells Moses, stretch out your hand over the streams and the canals and the ponds and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. And, and the frogs came up and covered the land. This is a powerful thing because you understand what's starting to happen. Just follow me. The river runs red, the fish die, the frogs hop out. A chain of natural events is being set in motion. Scripture says seven days has passed at this point. I want you to imagine a river that is bloated with dead decomposing fish. And after a week, the entire country of, of Egypt is, has piles of frogs that are rotting in the sun. What kind of insect do you think that attracts? Yeah, decomposing fish, stagnant water. It's the Meadowlands. <laughs> it's the perfect breeding grounds for swarms of flies, plagues three and four. Exodus 8 notes how dense swarms of flies poured into Pharaoh's palace and into the houses of his officials. And throughout Egypt, the land was ruined by the flies. You see the domino effect that's happening here. One thing leads to the next. There's blood, then there's fish, then, the, then the, 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 the frogs, then the gnats, then the flies. And flies, as you know, are carriers of germs and bacteria, not surprisingly. As the flies feast on the fish and the frogs, an epidemic breaks out. And the next day, the Lord said, all the livestock of the Egyptians will die, plague number five. Many scholars agree the cattle disease is anthrax. In other words, a bacterial epidemic caused by the decaying fish transferred by the airborne flies. And suddenly you realize God's at war. And he fights with all the power of nature at his disposal. Now, some of you might be saying, well, wait a minute. Is, it, is, it, is this an act of nature or is it the hand of God? What if it's both? What if it's the God of Israel passing judgment on the gods of Egypt, unleashing the sequence of catastrophes because Pharaoh actually won't take him at his word? 
See, folks, the idea here is that the supernatural is actually quite natural. God, the creator of all things, is not defying the created order, but actually harnessing it to achieve his purposes. Water to blood, fish and flies carrying anthrax. That's a naturally occurring toxin. Guys, this is the first record of biological warfare in human history. As epidemic breaks out, the nation's food supply is decimated. One, two, three, four, five, the dominoes start falling. And what's remarkable is that in the middle of it, Pharaoh still wouldn't budge. After each catastrophe, Scripture says, but Pharaoh hardened his heart and wouldn't let the people go. So God ups the ante with plague number six. It says festering boils broke out on men and animals. The question would be, why boils? This is what's called skin anthrax, most likely transmitted by the bites of the flies of plague number four. And I'm going to pause here because if this seems like suspicious science to you, like, like, wait a minute, whoa, 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 so it's the time out, Tim. Are you just slapping modern labels on something that happened 3,000 years ago? Again, modern science gives us a plausible corollary. Let's go back to 1986 in Lake Neos, Cameroon, the disaster that happened there. At that time, people living by the lake developed strange burns and boils all over their body. Why? It turns out the carbon dioxide mixed with the air and put the people in type of coma, reducing circulation to their skin, causing the exact kinds of boils described in the Bible as plague number six. Folks, are you connecting the dots here? Do you see the connection? The chain reaction the Bible's describing, one catastrophe leads to the next. It's amazing, isn't it? That something often dismissed as, this is just hocus pocus, would find such a compelling corollary in the 21st century. And what we're confronted with may be a new idea for you to actually chew on. What if science and scripture aren't in conflict, but actually confirm the story that God's been telling all along? That the God who created nature, all of it, is the God who works within nature to harness it for his redemptive purposes. God is powerful, and God also loves his people. Created us for freedom, and when that created order gets disturbed, he will take out his war bow and unleash cataclysmic events to right our attention. See, folks, you don't need to check your brain at the door to believe in miracles, folks. Fact and faith are more intertwined than we think at first glance. And this should give you doubters and you cynics a lot of encouragement. We need to open our mind, but also soften your heart. What do you think about this? Pharaoh's fatal flaw was a hardened heart. Even after a half dozen punishing plagues, he refused to believe this was true and let God's people go free. And so God unleashes a final fur- four on them, furious four, devastating plagues. You can look in your Bible. Just look at them just real quick. I'm, I'm skimming through these real quick just to introduce you. The plague of hail, it says, the plague of locusts, and the plague of darkness. And I'll pause there because there's a logic to this sequence. Exodus 9.23 says, when Moses stretched out his staff towards the sky, hail fell and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. So there's a devastating hailstorm that just thrashes the country. It's fascinating because Jewish accounts of this storm, this is a special kind of hail. It's one that mixes ice and fire in an unusual way. And to this day, modern rabbis teach that the biblical description is no metaphor. The seventh plague was the plague of hail, but the Bible describes hail in a very unique manner. The hail was together with ash, with fire. The idea being that the fire and the ice commingled together. They coexisted together. The Bible then describes God as making a miracle within a miracle. 
taking opposites in nature and having them coexist together. How can fire and ice exist together? They're two separate things, science and scripture, fire and ice. A miracle within a miracle, as the rabbi says. Incredibly, there is a hypothesis that sinks the date of the Exodus with another earth-changing cataclysmic event at that time. It was the eruption of the Santorini volcano in ancient Greece. I won't go into a big deal about this. But this is the, the island of Santorini. This is about 430 miles from the Egyptian coast um, across the Mediterranean. It's literally, you're looking at the mouth of a volcano. It looks like it's a giant lake. But about 3,500 years ago, Santorini was destroyed by one of the worst volcanic eruptions in human history. That is, that's all documented. When it erupted, it not only wiped out the people who lived there, it sent a cloud of ash measuring 25 miles straight up. And some scientists say it's entirely possible that the Santorini eruption could be a crucial clue for unlocking the exodus. In other words, plague number seven may very well be volcanic hail. The science is actually very simple. You guys get this. When, when, when hot ash goes so high in the atmosphere, it mixes with clouds, which are full of what? Moisture, water vapor. And at that altitude, small fragments of ash crystallize, causing this something form like a hailstone, but it's ice on the outside, fire on the inside. Imagine you are on the ground in Egypt when that volcano in Santorini erupted. Magma is raining down. It's mixed with ice, making it appear. You would have thought the world is coming to an end. The force of that explosion was 10,000 times more explosive than the atom bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. Okay? Again, this is a scientific theory, but it's a significant one because it explains what triggered plague number eight, which is very weird. This is the strangest one of them all to me. Exodus 10.15 says, Locusts covered all the ground until it was black. They devoured all that was left after the hail, everything growing in the fields and the fruit on the trees. Nothing green remained on tree or plant in all the land of Egypt. I know it's strange in the states here in North America. We're like locusts. That's kind of weird. Very common in Northeast Africa. They migrate in swarms, typically between 40 million and 80 million of them at a time. I want you to imagine with this fire and ash in the sky... Migrating swarms actually would have immediately sought shelter, a place to land and feed, and hence they land in Egypt. And so again, this, this volcanic eruption may have triggered this sequence of events we're reading here. Hail, locusts, and then scripture says, total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. Does this sound like a stretch to you? See, if, if you think the Bible is just simply ancient myths, it's because you're not paying attention to modern headlines. How could an entire country be covered in darkness for three days? Who remembers last year in Europe? What caused the cancellation of over 100,000 flights in Britain and Europe? 34 countries had to shut down their airspace. Anyone remember? Yeah. The eruption of a volcano in Iceland caused it a giant ash cloud to drift over Europe. Remember this picture in the news? That plume of ash went across Europe, cut, cut visibility to zero. It grounded planes across Britain, Scotland, Ireland. And it happened again this spring last month in Chile. A giant ash cloud fouling the air for miles. This is 2011, guys. But if you go back to the Exodus, that ash cloud from Santorini would have been 124 miles long by the time it reached Egypt. I want you to imagine this. A cloud of black ash stretching from New York to Philly. Can you imagine that? And when it reached the Nile Delta, it plunged the Egyptians in what the Bible says was a palpable darkness. In a matter of moments, 
Nobody can see the ashes falling all around the people. The sun has disappeared. They're choking on on black air, and and they have no idea what's going to happen next. And this, folks, is the ultimate slap in the face of Pharaoh. Why? Think about it. I gave you a clue at the beginning. What god did the Egyptians worship? The sun god, Ra. In other words, God's like, "Mm, okay, let's see. And now for my final trick. I am going to blot out your small g god, the sun god of Ramses, and show you who is lord over all creation. It's Yahweh. Powerful stuff. A creator leveraging his creation to humiliate his enemy and deliver his people. Folks, this is the science behind the scripture. And the question is, who would have thought that both are telling the same story, that they are more in sync than you or I think? I need to say this. The theory of Santorini's eruption at the time of the Exodus remained a theory for years. But Professor Gene Stanley from the Smithsonian Institute made a remarkable find recently. He discovered Santorini ash in the Nile River. It was a crucial find that brings science and scripture into incredible harmony. We had to look through 10 to 20,000 grains to find one ash grain. So we found a total of 40 ash grains. Not all ash looks the same. Ash has a fingerprint aspect. The ash particles that we find in the northern and northeastern Nile Delta are individual grains that came in from Santorini. There's very little room for doubt that the Exodus account and the descriptions that we have in Egypt of this, uh, the volcanic dust coming into Egypt and geological description where we can actually see, feel, touch, and date the, uh, the volcanic dust in the Nile, that they are describing the same tremendous volcanic event. Science and scripture, more in sync than you or I think. The reality, guys, is it's incredible because people tend to get very polarized in today's world. They say there's, it's either or. There's fact and then there's fiction. But God says, no, there's faith. Friends, I hope you see this. Faith does not require you to check your brain at the door. And belief in God is not a total leap in the dark. In fact, the more and more scientists explore and understand the principles of nature, the more and more it confirms what the Bible has been saying all along. That creation was fashioned, it was made by a creator. And that creator is a God who is both powerful, he can manipulate it like this for his purposes. But he is also loving. He does that to bless and protect and care for his children. There is a beautiful harmony here that should give you guys confidence and boldness in your faith. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause right here. Actually, I'm going to begin with Plague 10 next week. Because right now, if you're, if you're a doubt, you're kind of like, I want to see how this would explain the firstborn. How does the Egyptian kids die and no one else does? Plague number 10, the death of firstborn, the Passover. How does science explain that? We'll start with that next week. But I want to close by challenging two groups of people here today. Because you're like, your mind's probably, <clears throat> your gears are grinding at this point. You're like, what the... And how does this apply to my life? Here's the deal. I want to talk to those of you who are very rational in your approach to faith. You're totally geeking out at this moment. You're loving it. <laughs> and those of you who are more mystical, because there are some of you who are like, well, this is disappointing. 
Pastor Tim, don't explain away the miracles. See, when it comes to spiritual faith, people typically have one, they have a fixed point of view. They're either uber rational and they say, I can't believe in God unless I see evidence, unless everything in the Bible makes sense. They're very logical, they're rational, they need hard evidence, or they just can't believe it. On the other hand, there are more of you folks who are more mystical. For you, God only works in mysterious ways. Only if it's, if, if, if it's God speaking, if it's supernatural or strange or dramatic. Folks, one of the points of Exodus is that the natural is supernatural in the hands of our creator God. It is no biggie for God to use something quite natural to perform a miracle in the life of his people. The problem is, for, for, you, for rational folks, if you're a rational folk, a supernatural thing could hit you in the face and you wouldn't believe it because you've hardened your heart, yeah, like Pharaoh. Even after wave after wave of plague smacks Pharaoh in the face, it says he hardened his heart and he still wouldn't take God at his word because he worshiped Ra. Ra for him was his predetermined way of viewing the world and it blinded him to God. And for some of you, Ra is your intellect. You demand everything in the Bible has to make logical, linear sense for you to accept it. You've got objection after objection. I have a friend who has a lot of intellectual objections, and it's causing you to miss the God. He's right there in front of you. He loves you. He is here to deliver you and save you. It's the same God from Old to New Testament. On the other hand, if you're a mystic, your raw is that you always want God to act in miraculous, dramatic ways in your life. I had a man come up to me... um, great example of this. Uh, His marriage is falling apart. Not funny. And he came to me and I was listening to him and I said, wow, that's that's actually kind of heart-wrenching. He said, no, Pastor Tim, but I'm waiting for God to step in and do a miracle. I know he can save it. He's a God of resurrection. I'm waiting on a miracle. And I listened to his story about why his wife's heart is so hard. And I said, "Um, have you tried just apologizing to her? I just don't. I mean, what if you guys got some counseling together? And he looked at me with horror, like I was unspiritual. Like, no, that can't be the answer. God's going to do a miracle. He's going to deliver us. And I was like, dude, maybe you just need to apologize to your wife. I just, simple as it seems, maybe God can use that. And he didn't want to hear it because his heart was hardened. Like, because mystics are focused on supernatural rescue. See, folks, sometimes, depending on your approach to life, we get fixated on seeing God in our predetermined ways. Those who are mystical can be, they can't accept a very natural answer that's right underneath your nose because your heart's hard. You're looking for something dramatic. It's got to be a miracle. It's gotta, it can't be something as simple as just apologizing. I need a dream. I need a word of knowledge. I need a vision. No, dude, maybe it's just apologizing to your wife. Maybe God can use that. My challenge is this. Whether you skew more mystical or rational, could you allow for seeing God in your life in another way? Could you allow that some folks do experience a supernatural, and you know what? It doesn't fit together all cleanly and tidy. You can dismiss your mom or your relative or your crazy aunt who's always talking about Jesus, and you don't get all that and everything, but you know what? It's very, very real to them. Or could you accept that some people have a mind, yeah, that sees, that perceives the supernatural in the very orderly processes of God's creation? Folks, sometimes the natural is supernatural. Do you see that? Or is your heart hardened like Pharaoh? You can only see God your way. God's trying to get through to you, but you've got your raw and you've hardened your heart and you can't hear his voice. What if God's bigger than that? What if he's bigger than your intellect? Or what if he's trying to save you through something 
very normal and natural instead of the dramatic miracle you want. Is it possible God's big enough for both? The God of science, the God of scripture, that he's telling the same story and he's inviting you in. Is it possible? The story of Exodus is the story of you and me and what it takes for each of us to truly believe. The question is, will you take God at his word? Let's pray together. God, provocative stuff. I just want to acknowledge that right now, Father. And I thank you um, so much, Lord, for preserving the story of the Exodus literally over um, three millennia, God, so that we could even now begin chewing on that, Father, and what it means, the fact that you're not only the God of creation, but a God of deliverance. That your desire for us is to live freely. And Lord, you freed Israel because you wanted them to worship you. That's the whole purpose, God. And so we believe everything was created by Jesus and for Jesus. It's under his authority and power. And God, I ask right now that even these words that we've shared today would be filtered through the spirit of Jesus, by your Holy Spirit. God, if anything I've said um, is um, not helpful, Lord, to building faith, I pray that it would just fall to the ground like ash (laughs) and no one would remember it. But I pray, Father, for the people that you're speaking to who, Lord, maybe have had obstacles to you to belief, I pray, God, this would drive them even deeper into an investigation of your son, Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the gift of faith. It really is a gift, and um, it's a, it is a, a, a privilege, Lord, to be here, to examine it and realize, Lord, your word holds up to inspection. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, all God's people said together, amen. Thanks for listening to Liquid Church Media. If you were inspired or challenged by today's message, we hope you'll tell a friend. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins.